Want to get the inside scoop on intermittent fasting? I just chatted to Jason Fung, world leader on intermittent fasting, about pretty much everything. How fasting heals the body, why women put on weight and struggle to lose it more than men, how fasting relates to cancer. Is it possible to save a limb from being amputated just by fasting? And many, many other things, including autophagy and long fasts. Tune in as I break it down with Dr. Jason Fung. We're live. Jason Fung, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. Cool, man. So, Jason, first question. Uh, when you were at school, did you know that you were going to be, when you were at like med school, did you know that you were going to change the way medicine, that medicine is, is practiced? Was that like a goal you had? No, not really. Not at all, actually. <laughs> it's it's funny because I didn't even have any interest in nutrition specifically. I mean, it was not something uh, that was taught in medical school. And for years afterwards, I really didn't have much interest in it. And the problem is, of course, the obesity epidemic, just it just became a bigger and bigger and bigger part of medicine and specifically what I do, which is uh, kidney disease. It, it turns out that type 2 diabetes is a very, very prominent cause of kidney disease, which is related to the uh, obesity epidemic. So especially in the United States and Canada, for example. So it became a bigger and bigger part of the practice. Um, but even then, I sort of had I, – I, I'm a clinician. That is, I – you know, I'm not a researcher, I'm not with the university. So, you know, there was no idea that, you know, I'm going to change the way people think. It's more like as a clinician, you're more like, okay, well, I'll just work with people directly. So not with the research. I'm not a researcher. I don't, you know, write papers. I don't like, I do a few of that, but not, not a lot. That's not my primary role. My primary role is to just work with people. So people come to me, I treat them. And it was the researcher and the academics role to really develop new ideas and come up with new stuff. So that was sort of the way that people sort of do it, right? You've got your practitioners and you've got your academics. The interesting part of not just medicine, but a lot of fields, is that there's a huge gap between the academics and the practitioners. That is, the academics think they know what works in real life. And the problem is they don't really listen to the practitioners who tell you whether it works or not in real life. So that, that, that didn't used to be the case. So in the past, say 50 years ago, the academics were practitioners as well. So right. it wasn't like 10% you know, practice and 90% research, which is sort of what you have today. So it's sort of an afterthought. The actual seeing patients part of the equation was an afterthought. Uh, they're more like 50-50. So you'd have doctors who would do research, but 50% of the time they're actually seeing patients. So then if the stuff that they're talking about doesn't work, they would be the first ones to know it because they'd be using right. it and so on. And um, it sort of changed. So it became these researchers who would just do research and and they would sort of look down their nose at the practitioners as sort of stupid. Like they don't know what's going on. I'm on the cutting edge. I know what's going on. And so there became this huge gap between the people who were sort of supposed to set the agenda, you know, lead the field in terms of knowledge and the people who are supposed to follow and practice. So I was in that sort of practice. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to treat people. I, I, I like to do that. So what was interesting is that as you 
have those people. So, and, you know, the difference between the two, the academic and the clinicians, is interesting because the academics think that they're the smartest people in the room, sort of thing. Whereas it's not always true. There's a lot of people who are very mediocre, not very smart people who go into academics. And there's a very lot of very, very smart people who go into being clinical medicine. It's just a matter of what you like. So I, you know, chose clinical medicine. I like clinical medicine. Um, and a lot of my friends who are very, very smart also went into clinical medicine just because they like it, not because they were stupid, as opposed to the academics who think that they're just, hey, we're like the top 1% of the smarts here. And so those <laughs> not so smart people went into clinical medicine. But it, it's not really like that. So, so then you get into the real world. And over the past 10, 20 years, there's this bigger and bigger divide between them. So you get to the point eventually where what the academics are think that, you know, is true is obviously not true. It's clear to anybody who actually works that the stuff they talk about in obesity medicine yeah. is complete crap, like just garbage. Like horrible, horrible stuff. And it's not my opinion. If the stuff they talked about works, it, we wouldn't have an obesity epidemic. Like it shouldn't be my job to have to lead the field like or yeah. bring out new thoughts about fasting, about you know talking about low carb. And of course, the low carb movement completely grew out of this grassroots sort of revolution as opposed yeah. to the academics actually being smart enough to say, hey, there's actually something here. Let's look at it. Instead, they're all still stuck in this calories in, calories out. And, and even now, like even years and years and years after this whole, it, it's obvious that this calorie counting stuff is really, really useless in terms of weight loss. Okay. Yeah. So that's not my opinion. Everybody's done it. Like 99% of people who do calorie counting, they fail. And then what they do is they, the, the academics blame the people. They say, oh, that's because these people, hello? Yeah, I'm here. I got you. Sorry, you just dropped out there for a second. Um, so, okay. So it, it got to the point where the academics are saying, oh, you just have to count calories. You just have to count calories. Drop 500 calories a day. And so then that's what everybody did. And of course, it didn't work at all, right? And then instead of saying that, okay, there's something wrong with this advice. It's bad advice. They thought, we're really smart. So our advice is perfect. And it's the people who are stupid, right? And it's like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> like all right this is this is not going well because year after year you had more and more people who couldn't lose weight then they got their diabetes then they got their kidney disease and i'm like there at the end saying what is wrong like like we're not making people better like it is not working here so that's where i was like okay well let me look into this so i got very interested in the question of weight loss and how to lose weight and how to gain weight and i really started to you know focus on that question and then realize that hey almost everything those academics were talking about was just garbage it still is garbage like honestly they haven't learned anything they still think you know low carb is dumb and fasting is bad and all this sort of stuff but then luckily i'm not in that arena where people are there every day to tell me how stupid these thoughts are yeah. so then i can just practice so i that's my sort of um privilege is that i can just use it if i think that it's the right that they think to do 
you know, my licensing as a doctor allows me to give advice on people for, for their disease. So then I started using fasting. I started using low carbon. It was incredible. Like people were getting better, like left and right. They're losing weight. Their diabetes was reversing. They're getting off their medications. It was just crazy. And that's sort of where it kind of came to be. And, and I realized more and more that a lot of these movements really have to come not from the academics, which are really paid to lead the sort of movement, but everything comes as a sort of grassroots revolution, mm. everything in nutrition essentially does does not come from the doctors. <laughs> Sad yeah. as it is to say, like if you look at what what has happened, like this whole change in terms of you know uh, the healthy fats and the Mediterranean diets and all that stuff, it, it's all just comes from somebody else, not the the academics and so on so they've they've you know it's it's sort of sad in in that way that so but but it happened that i'm in that position where i'm much more closer to the people because of where i work as a clinician not you know i'm not just reading papers saying theoretically this calorie thing should be perfect it should work great and then when it doesn't work eh, that's because the people doing it are, are wrong right it's like it's it's a very very condescending sort of thing and i'm glad i'm not in that totally so you mentioned quite a few things there uh the one that stands out is the low carb so i did look at your program the fastingmethod.com which looks super cool but you also said there that you're not that you can you don't have to be on a low carb diet. And I think I've heard you speak about this before. So, you know, is fasting an island on its own that supports any eating pattern or does it have to be married to to a low carb diet? No, fasting can be used with any uh, pattern. It it works better, I think, with low carb. I mean, the point is that they're different. So when you're talking about diets, really you're talking about the foods that you eat. Fasting doesn't tell you what foods you should eat. Fasting tells you the amount of time that you shouldn't be eating. So they're they're very complementary in that way. That is, they do different things. So you can do fasting and you can still eat McDonald's, right? It's it it doesn't it doesn't conflict with the fasting. It, it doesn't mean that you're gonna do well, but you know, but the, it doesn't have they're completely separate sort of ideas. If you want to get the most benefit, I think, then you have to use the best sort of regimen for fasting and the best sort of diet. And I think low carb is that, um, you know, does does for weight loss anyway is 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 really that. But but there there are other ways to lose weight. I mean, it's it's not necessarily with the fasting. It, I think low carb also makes it easier for fasting, just because. Yeah. Again, you're staying full for longer as opposed to eating a lot of, you know, refined carbohydrates where you're going to get this sort of big insulin spike and then it's going to go down and you're going to get hungry. So I think it does work very well in a number of ways, but the fasting itself is not necessarily um, linked to, to low carb. I think, you know, and that's, 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 that's why you can do well. And I think it's because, again, from a clinical standpoint, I see a lot of patients. and A lot of patients are not going to change their meals that is they're gonna they'll tweak it to some extent but if they're used to a certain meal they're going to only like play around the edges they're not going to completely revamp things like it's very hard to take somebody who you know eats steak and potatoes and hates vegetables and then turn them into a vegan like that that sort of drastic uh, change is very difficult so if you're gonna say well the only thing you can do is 
you know, change everything you've ever, you know, the way you've eaten for the last 55 years, we're going to change everything about it. I don't know that you're going to be successful in changing that. So you're, you're better off sort of changing a few things, getting rid of the worst things, and then adding the fasting because the fasting sort of works on a different level from that. And that's sort of where I focused, um, you know, because in the end, I don't really care. I'm not, uh, married to any dogma it's really about getting the patient better to succeed um, so putting in uh, completely unrealistic goals like everybody should be ketogenic it's like uh, not everybody gonna follow that it's it's not yeah. gonna be or everybody should eat grass-fed beef it's like it's just very expensive you can't do that for a lot of people yeah. right so so you know I don't want to be too dogmatic um, as to any diet because different diets do work like there are people who do eat a very high carb diet and still do well like like the Chinese for example from 30 years ago there wasn't a lot of um, yeah Yeah, there was not a lot of processed (laughs) foods but they're eating a lot of carbs they just weren't eating a lot of sugar and that was a big thing so i think that the the point is that you can still do well with traditional diets or the japanese or uh whatever um they are used to eat a lot of rice and so on but they're very slender as a society so the the point is that you can succeed with many different diets and that's why i don't want to be too sort of strict about it but if you're to ask me i'd probably go with a low-carb diet got it uh and you you know you, what you said earlier you said you're at the like the end of the menu as far as health goes like when you see a nephrologist you know, you got, well, if you're there for diabetes and those complications. Um, and I had a nephrologist friend actually at my CrossFit box and I, I try to get him involved in my program. And I mentioned you and, uh, and he said, no, when people come to me, they're too far gone. So you got to start like earlier down the table. And I heard an urban legend that someone came to you and they were about to have their limb amputated. And you put them on a 30-day broth fast and saved their limb. Is that a, is that a true story? Uh, it's it, to some extent. So the, the guy, he was um, a very interesting guy. So I actually met him in hospital. He was diabetic. And he had this non-healing foot ulcer, which is very common in diabetes. And the thing is that the, these non-healing ulcers, they had it for like a year and a half. So it's an open wound and it just sort of continues to fester. So he came in because it got infected. So I put him on antibiotics. But then I was talking to his dad, actually, because the guy was about 30-something, 40. And I was like, gosh, I mean, these things almost always lead to amputations, these non-healing wounds, because they just continue to fester and fester until it affects the bone and then it affects the whole thing. So eventually, I knew what was going to happen just because I've seen this a lot. Um, so these non-healing wounds in diabetics, they will eventually lead to amputation, not right away, but, uh, eventually, I mean, it's already been a year and a half that he had it. So I was talking to his dad, who was actually Greek Orthodox and who the Greek Orthodox religion, there's tons of fasting everywhere. So I talked to his dad and his dad immediately sort of saw the, the, the logic of what I was talking about, which is that, Hey, if you have diabetes, which is leading to this non-healing wound, then you got to get rid of the diabetes. Otherwise, you're never going to heal the wound. It's as simple as that, right? Diabetes caused this wound. Got to get rid of the diabetes. Otherwise, nothing you do, not antibiotics, not dressings, which is what we're treating him with, dressings and antibiotics, is going to make this wound better. So he talked to his son. He got on board. 
we put them on, it wasn't a 30 day fast. We rarely do long, long fasts like that, but it was sort of a uh, 24 hour fast, 24 to 36 hour fast, sort of three to four times a week. So fairly intensive because he was pretty far down the line. And then after about 30 days, I saw him again and the wound was just shrinking. It was incredible. I was like, wow, this wound, which hadn't done anything but fester and get worse for a year and a half was actually now starting to shrink as the, as the, you know, get rid of the diabetes, the wound actually has a chance to heal. So it's just incredible. So after a couple of months, the whole thing actually just dried up and closed up and it was done. So it was like, wow, that was incredible. Um, you know, but, but the point was that it's, it's getting to the root of the problem, which is so important. So if you have kidney disease, and it's the same for amputation, if you have kidney disease, which is caused by diabetes, you're not going to be able to do anything about it until you get rid of the diabetes. Now, the kidney disease, as uh, you know, just talking about the nephrologist, is true. Uh, the, the kidney disease often takes 20 years to develop. So by the time you get to that point, it is very difficult. If you've had 20 years of damage to your kidneys, you can't reverse it in like you know a month and a half. Um, so you do have to go much, much earlier, which is, again, why I've actually tried to start seeing people much, much earlier in the process before they get their kidney disease, because you really have to prevent these things um, and not treat them. And that's one of the reasons that I, I did a lot of sort of writing. I wrote a lot of blogs and I wrote a, you know, did YouTube lectures because I, I wanted to get the message out to the earlier stage and not be the one at the late stage saying, well, you know, we could have done something 15 years ago, but now I'm going to put you on dialysis. Like it's not a good feeling for anybody. Yeah. So, so that was what led to that. It, you know, is the same thing. I wanted to get to them much earlier. And then that's where I wrote the book and so on. And, and that was the diabetes code or the obesity uh, code? Well, the obesity code was talking about weight loss. The, the diabetes code is much more specific for type 2 diabetes. So it's a much more medical uh, in nature. Some of the, There's a bit of overlap uh, because just because, you know, the publisher is like, well, if they haven't read the obesity code, so I had to repeat a bit of stuff in it. But the a lot of the sort of stuff we talk about, um, is specific to diabetes. And, and the point was that yeah, we wanted them separate because somebody who doesn't have type 2 diabetes is not going to be that interested in the whole the whole question of right. yeah, <laughs> diabetes uh, as opposed to if they're there for weight loss, then they can do that. Um, so yeah, it, it was, it was uh, that's, that's where I wrote those two books to, to try and get it. I have a new book coming out actually in November. So that's The Cancer Code, which is a, it's just something a little bit different from, from, from that too. No, if you think you've got like, uh, so I was looking for trolls on you earlier because I wanted to ask you how you feel about trolls. Um, and, but I mean, if you don't have trolls now, <laughs> like, what do you think is going to happen when the cancer code comes out? Uh, the cancer code is a little bit different uh, because it's not really just talking about nutrition. So the, the reason I got very interested in the question, of course, is because I was very interested in obesity and type 2 diabetes and so on. And there's actually a huge increase in risk of cancer. So as I started to look into it a little further, it was quite interesting because the entire story of cancer is actually quite different 
than what we had thought, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I went to medical school, for example. It was a very different, people thought it was more of a genetic disease. And the other thing that was a sort of a revelation, so it turns out it wasn't purely a genetic disease. So there are genetic mutations and so on. But the question is, what is driving those mutations? And it really is an, is an evolutionary process, which is what's is, that, that part, I think, is totally fascinating. It hasn't, has very little to do with nutrition. But the other thing that was very new and not suspected uh, compared to where I went to school in the 1990s uh, for medical school, the mid-1990s, late 1990s, what people never suspected was that there was a, you know, from a nutrition and um, a, a cancer standpoint was that obesity was actually one of the major, major risk factors for cancer. And that was not known until about 2003 when the first uh, major studies started coming out. And it's like, oh, we just missed that whole thing. Like if you look at textbooks from the 90s, like as in when I went to med medical school, there was no talk about obesity and type 2 diabetes being risk factors for cancer. It turns out for specific cancers, because something like right. lung cancer, of course, it's not. Like yeah. lung cancer is smoking, right? Same as mesothelioma, that's asbestos. It has nothing to do with obesity, but for certain ones like breast and colorectal, which are very common cancers, mm. um, it turns out that obesity is a huge, huge, huge risk factor. And then the question of why is that, and I think it comes down again, once again, to sort of insulin. Insulin is, and it's not just insulin, so I do go into some of the other uh, nutrient sensors, but insulin turns out not just a metabolic hormone, but a very, very, very potent growth factor. So again, if you have too much insulin, then you're signaling your body to grow which obviously is not good if you have cancer cells. So cancer cells, are very, some of them are very, very sensitive to insulin, so they respond by growing very um, exuberantly. Got it. So, you, so, the, so the iceberg, because I remember seeing like an iceberg diagram where the bottom of the iceberg is like insulin resistance, and then on the top of the iceberg, there were all those metabolic conditions, so like gout, uh, hypertension, um, type 2 diabetes and then I think at one point I remember I was at a talk with Tim Noakes and he said cancer and everyone in the audience was like oh my god like he said the c word and uh and and at the time I think what he was trying to say was that insulin resistance you know cancer is another um expression of of insulin resistance but what you're saying is slightly different That's no it's the same thing so insulin resistance um <clears throat> is really synonymous with hyperinsulinemia. So hyper means high, insulin is insulin, and emia is in the blood. It's a suffix that means in the blood. So hyperinsulinemia is a condition where you have too much insulin in the blood. Turns out that in insulin resistance are really the same thing. It's actually rather unfortunate people call it insulin resistance because that doesn't tell you anything about what you know is going on. But because the, the what, what happens is that if you have too much insulin in the blood, which is hyperinsulinemia, it will cause insulin resistance. If you have insulin resistance, then your body responds by making more insulin. So in other words, hyperinsulinemia leads to insulin resistance. Insulin resistance leads to hyperinsulinemia. So it's the same. It's, it's really just two sides of the same coin. Um, so the point is that if you call it insulin resistance, then you say, well, what causes insulin resistance? And then you're sort of stuck nowhere. You have a lot of people say, oh, if you eat too much fat, you get insulin resistance, right? Which I don't think is true. 
Um, if you call it hyperinsulinemia, on the other hand, then you immediately have a solution. If insulin is too high, how are you going to lower it? And then fasting is one method, low-carbohydrate diets is another method. So calling it insulin resistance, sort of mass where you're supposed to go with that, calling it hyperinsulinemia tells you, hey, if there's too much insulin, then that's your problem right there. And it's the same thing. So insulin resistance is the same as hyperinsulinemia, but it's better to call it hyperinsulinemia because you can now you can think of it clearly. So if you have too much Yeah, so if you have too much insulin, then you have insulin resistance. It's the same thing. If you have too much insulin and insulin's growth factor, well, you're going to, your cells are going to grow too much. And one of the consequences is that you're going to increase your risk of cancer. So the, it fits in perfectly. So it's the same thing that we're talking about. But again, by flipping the, the, the term that you use, it's a lot more clear as to what you're supposed to do about it. Got it. Now, is this... so? I want to just, I think this might be changing the subject, but autophagy. Okay. And, and I think, you know, I think I'm curious about a lot of the things you mentioned in relation to auto, is it autophagy or autophagy? I'm not sure. Yeah, how to say. People say it both ways, but okay. I usually say autophagy. So, so the guy who's healing his wound um, and the guy, and I don't know what the, how fasting benefits cancer, which maybe you can tell us a bit about as well, but uh, what I understand, what I've heard about autophagy or autophagy is that it's a, a healing process that you go like a mending process that happens when you're fasting. Like, are they yeah. related at all the wound and, and the reduction of cancer uh, symptoms or anything? Um, they're, they're related in a way. So uh, just to talk about fasting and cancer, one is that fasting um, has very little research. So will it reduce cancer? It's unclear. Uh, what we know is that obesity is a huge risk factor for cancer. So if fasting helps you reduce obesity, then that probably will reduce your risk of cancer. That is, if you can use fasting, um, and it's not exclusive, you could use diets, for example, to reduce your weight and therefore reduce your risk of cancer. They don't necessarily have to fast. Uh, theoretically, fasting has a number of benefits, of course, uh, one as as a way to lose weight, but also um, as a way to reduce uh, not just the insulin, but also mTOR. mTOR is another nutrient sensor which is important for autophagy. And what it is is when you eat protein, your um, your um, mTOR goes up when you eat protein. And when it goes up, it turns off uh, autophagy. And autophagy is this process in the body where you get rid of these sort of subcellular organelles. So these subs, so you're not talking about cells, you're talking about the structures within the cells for autophagy. Um, it also improves the, uh, so, so what it is is you get rid of it because your body is like, well, I have no food coming in and I have no protein coming in more specifically, which is what mTOR is. Um, and therefore, I need to get rid of any sort of superfluous stuff, right? Just like if you, you know, if you have, uh, you know, you're not making as much money, you're not going to have, you know, a lot of memberships and subscriptions and stuff because that's all money going out. Same thing with the cell, right? The cell is like, okay, I need to support everything. But if I have no energy coming in, I can't support all these things. So I'm going to get rid of all this junk. So the stuff that they get rid of, these subcellular structures, it gets rid of them all. 
um, which everybody thinks that getting rid of these things is bad, but it's actually a good thing because when you're talking about the process of rejuvenation, then what you have to do first is get rid of all your stuff. So just like if you were to, you know, renovate your room in your house, like the first thing you got to do is clear it all out. So if you've got a ton of junk in your basement room that you're using just as storage, you know, you clear it out. You got to throw it all out first. And of course, it looks like 80% better just by throwing all the stuff out. Um, and it's the same, right? And then you replace what you need. Like, oh, you take everything out and you say, okay, I like this, I like this. And you put those few things back. Same thing with autophagy. So the first thing it does is it gets rid of everything. And then it slowly builds back what you need. And the point is that it's not the, 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 the destructive process of getting rid of it, which is the autophagy, is actually the first part in the rejuvenation process because then you right. kind of rebuild yourself. So that's the whole idea of why fasting might be very beneficial because the thing that controls fasting is not insulin. So if, even if you eat a very low, low-carbohydrate diet, you're not going to turn autophagy on because you have to get rid of the protein because when you eat protein that's when when that's what turns off of the autophagy so so the point is that fasting is a way to get into autophagy whereas just low carbohydrate diets is not necessarily a way in fact it probably won't put you into autophagy if you're eating and it probably takes about 16 hours or so of fasting to sort of get into it all depending on what, how much protein that you ate in the first place but um you know the link to cancer and autophagy is sort of very tenuous as well there's not a lot of data on that but the point is that it's it's probably the autophagy is probably a very good for longevity. And that's why a lot of people who are looking at longevity and so on, they're talking about autophagy and it's and, and in the wellness circles, it's very topical. Um, but you know, it's not easy to get into because if you're eating a regular diet, you can't eat a zero protein diet. The, you, you will not do well if you eat a zero protein diet. Like if you just ate rice and potatoes all day, which is pure carbohydrates, you're not going to do well because you need the protein. Uh, there's a minimum amount of protein that you need to eat uh, to stay healthy. So that, therefore, you can't go to zero protein diet. So for therefore, the only way you're going to be able to do autophagy is to periodically go to zero. So right. if you periodically, which is fasting, right? You periodically go to zero protein, you activate the autophagy, then you turn it off. So you cycle it. But that's the only yeah. way. You can't do a zero protein diet forever. And, and you said, so uh, in fact, a, a question from one of our coaches, uh, Sean Vasa, he asked about the optimal time to get into autophagy. So you said 16 hours to get there. Like, do you need to spend another eight hours in it? Like how, you know, how, what's the dosage? Uh, Nobody knows. So it's very hard to measure it. So, you know, if you look at, um, if you look at autophagy, you probably start to get there by 16 hours. You might even get there a little earlier. And then it probably goes until about 30 hours. 
and then and then it's mostly just fat metabolism. So you're not burning off any more protein because we can we can measure when the body starts gluconeogenesis, which is the process where it takes protein and uses it for energy, and it starts to build probably around eight to ten hours, and then uh, get out into about thirty hours. Then the gluconeogenesis basically stops, and then you're just going into basic fat metabolism. So you're not if you're not burning protein you're not burning these sort of um, subcellular structures because you're not feeding that you're not feeding that sort of protein into the fire for energy got it so with gluconeogenesis uh, i'm trying to figure out if there's going to be more than one question but so the question i was going to ask you was loose skin okay uh, and i've heard you say before that when you are fasting um, a lot of the protein that we get when we go into gluconeogenesis is from our skin and our gut lining. Is that, is that yeah, right? it's 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 again an interesting um, thing because when you look at fasting, so then this data has been around for fifty plus years. You start off from sort of zero to um, twenty-four hours. You can measure where the body is getting energy from. So first of all, you have your glycogen stores, which is for, which is basically glucose, so sugar. So you have glucose molecules that are strung together in the liver and it's glycogen. So that will last you for most purposes under twenty-four hours. Um, and it depends on how much glycogen you have. But assuming that you have full glycogen stores, it's going to last about 24 hours. So around 24 hours and less, of course, if you're eating a low-carb diet. Um, what happens is that your body doesn't go into fat metabolism right away. So you don't go from sort of glucose right into fat. There's a lag there. So probably around 30 hours to 36 hours, for example, fat metabolism is rising. So in between the 24 to 30 hours, or maybe 16 hours, if you don't have full stores, to the 30 hours, you've got this period of time, this six, seven, eight hours, where you don't have sugar and you don't have fat. So the body sort of throws protein into there and that's called gluconeogenesis. And that's where everybody always says that's so bad. That's why you're going to lose muscle. You're going to lose muscle. It's like, okay, but the body's just not that stupid. Like you don't (laughs) store energy as sugar and fat and then burn muscle because why would the body be so stupid, right? You're You're storing sugar, you're storing fat. And then when you need it, you burn protein, right? Muscle. But it's not muscle, so it's protein. And there's a big difference between the two. That is, protein is all the structures of our body, including skin, including connective tissue. And if you look at somebody who is overweight compared to somebody who is normal weight, they've probably got about 50 to 80% more protein than the person who's normal weight. And that's all that excess skin, that's all that excess connective tissue. And connective tissue is just the stuff that holds it. So you have blood vessels, for example, through your skin. You need something to hold it where it is. That's connective tissue. So that stuff is the stuff that gets burned in that gluconeogenesis period. And everybody says it's bad, but it's probably very, very good. It's a natural thing, so it's probably very good. And this is one of the things that we've noticed clinically. So I don't have any studies on this because I'm not a researcher, but 
out of the sort of hundreds and hundreds of people who have lost a lot of weight with us, we haven't sent a single person for skin removal surgery. And in fact, they notice that their skin is not bad. It's not, but it's not loose and flappy like you see sometimes on TV. Yeah. And I think the reason is that because we use fasting, what has happened is that the body is starting to metabolize that protein. Now, when the body metabolizes protein, it basically just, you know, it, it takes some protein, burns it off. And then the stuff it needs, it will replace. Just like when you're cleaning your room and you take everything out and then you say, okay, well, I like this shelf and I like this trophy. I'm going to put those two things back. That's what the body does. It burns everything and then you will replace it as needed, right? So if you are using your muscles, then you'll replace those muscle cells. But if you, you know, so you burn a bit of skin and a bit of connective tissue and a bit of muscle, for example, then your body says, well, you know, you're using that muscle, so I'm going to replace that. But the skin and the connective tissue are gone. Right, so it's not selective. It doesn't know what you need. It doesn't need. It just gets rid of everything and then says, "Okay, well, you need that. Okay, then you're gonna, we're gonna we're gonna build that." But it's like if there's no there's no stimulus for new skin growth, then it's not gonna grow it. Right. So so this is this is how the body works. It gets rid of everything, replaces what it needs. So this is why we actually don't see the same problems with loose, flappy skin. As some of the other programs, and it's it's very important because it gives you a like, you know, no other diet has a has a has a sort of solution for the loose skin. But for、yeah. us, we never ran into that problem. So it's interesting, and again, it's interesting from a clinical perspective because that's you know something we didn't expect. It's just something that we observed as we started using it, sort of more and more. Totally. I mean, I know. I mean, I know that a few people have commented on、uh, the Dukan diet, and sometimes with keto, where they fast unintentionally. So I know, like the Dukan diet is like zero fat, high protein, and then you alternate with like zero fat、uh, protein and vegetables.、Um, it's basically like extreme low fat keto. And, they, and anyway, so the people that I know have done it have said that they went through, through like periods of days or like a day at a time of just not. Eating anything, which would have, and and so the point is that at the end they also had like no, like less cellulite and no and no loose skin after dramatic weight loss. So it's super interesting. What is the deal with like long fasts? I see that you said in your Facebook group you don't talk about any fasts longer than a day or two days. Um, <laughs> well, long fasts are perfectly fine, but they're like anything else. Everything has sort of two sides. So the longer you go, the more powerful it is. But if you're, it, it, it's also potentially,、um, you know, going to have harmful effects if you're not able to deal with them. So we specifically avoided talking about long fasts for a long, long time, just because there is so much like. People thought that not eating for twelve hours was seriously bad, right? <laughs> you know, when we started, that people were like, "Oh, how can you go for more than you know sixteen hours?" It's like,、um, yeah, have you ever studied like human history? It's like you know, it, it was crazy. Ever, people were really... yeah. Did you ever forget to eat breakfast? <laughs> The sixteen-hour fast. You've done it. I know it's 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 insane, but I'll tell you that it was. 
super, super controversial for a long, long time. And it, it still is in certain parts of sort of academia. People think that, you know, you must eat every two hours, otherwise you're going to die. It's like, you know, how did people survive from the Stone Ages, right? It's like, you know, there's probably periods where they went a lot longer without food. But they sort of conveniently forget that and they think, okay, well, you know, if you don't eat every two hours, you're going to do your body some irreparable harm. So that was why we avoided it. There's actually nothing intrinsically wrong with it as long as you have um, the adequate fat stores. So again, we were getting, we didn't talk about it for a long time in the, the earlier times, just because it was like so out there, like fasting as a word was just a dirty word. And the whole idea of going like 24 hours was just blowing people's minds. Right. So going five days was like, okay, that's just insane sort of thing. Right. But the point is that if you have, so one day of fasting is going to burn, you know, sort of roughly half a pound of fat because a pound of fat, say, is roughly 3,500 calories and your body might need 1,800 calories. So you're talking about two full days of fasting to burn one pound of fat. So if you are at like 400 pounds, you know, and a lot of the people we treat are like, like that, um, you know, you have like, 250 pounds of fat right and going two days is going to burn one so doing a long fast is not a bad strategy if you're in that situation where you're very sick and you have the adequate food store but we didn't talk about it because you know we had we're getting you know all these sort of haters and stuff is like oh people and, and a lot of academics who said that oh you're going to do really bad stuff and you know, a lot of doctors who, who who just didn't understand what like what the physiology of fasting really was, or basic human physiology. I mean, honestly, it's like, what do you think the body carries all that fat for? Like, yeah, like isn't it really? an adaptation? It's an adaptation <laughs> yeah. that allows us to survive famine. Should exactly, that's isn't what, it that's what precisely is. the reason that we actually have body fat is so that we can use it when there's nothing to eat. So you're using the body fat for exactly what it was designed for, except that you have so much that it's actually making you sick. So what's better than just using it up? So, you know, anyway, the, the logic sort of escaped a lot of people for a lot of years. So with the long fast, of course, there's some advantages to doing that because one is you're going to get this sort of concentrated period of time where you're going to be burning fat. Once you go past the glycogen, once you get past gluconeogenesis, you're basically using fat for energy. And that's why that's why we burn did that, right? That's what bears do too, right? They store fat and then they use it during hibernation. So there, the advantage is you're right in there and every, you know, as you get past 36 hours, every day is just all coming from your fat stores, basically. So that's a big advantage. Two is that the hunger tends to really decrease uh, during that period of time. And three, some people actually feel really good uh, during these longer fasts. So when you're going multiple days, three days, five days, um, you can feel really good. And there's actually no upper limit. You can go 30 days, you can go 60 days, you can go 90 days if you want. But the longer you go, of course, the more risk you're taking with, um, you know, nutrient deficiency, because yes, you're eating zero, you're getting no nutrients. The point is that your body has enough, has too much of most of those nutrients. So therefore, um, you know, you can go a long time. But you know, for, for somebody who's sort of looking to lose 10 pounds of fat, I mean, that's 20 days of fasting. 
that you could potentially do, no problem. So to go 24, 36 hours is like, uh, you're not even close to being in the danger zone. Yeah. If, you're, if your fasters are low, like if you're anorexic, basically, then no, you shouldn't be doing this kind of stuff, right? It makes no sense. But, you know, I'm treating people on this side of the spectrum. Got it. Uh, I don't know if this is your area, but I know quite a few guys, and I tried it a few times, uh, exercising in a fasted state, which also seems, you know, like you would want to kill an animal when you haven't eaten in two days. <laughs> like, it, is there any science that you know about the benefits of exercising in a fasted state? Oh, absolutely. So there's, there's really a lot of uh, theoretical benefits as to why it should be beneficial, especially for a more endurance type uh, thing. The one is that, as your insulin goes down, your counter-regulatory hormones go up, so growth hormone and cortisol and all these other hormones do go up, including the activation of the sympathetic nervous system and noradrenaline. So you're actually pumping your body up, in, in which case that should make the workouts easier. When you do eat again, your growth hormone is up, so presumably it's going to make it easier to recover. So this sort of fasting in the training, uh, training in the fasted state makes a lot of sense. Where it doesn't make a lot of sense is the only place it doesn't make a lot of sense is in the sort of actual high performance. So if you're, say, a world-class, you know, very, very high-level world-class athlete, one, you have to be adapted to the fat-burning stage, which can take weeks. So in that period of time when you're changing over your training regimen and your dietary regimen, you may experience a period where you're not going to be as effective. And two, in the actual race, like if you're an Olympic runner and you're doing, you know, a race, you don't necessarily want to be fasted uh, because fat metabolism is slightly slower than carbohydrate metabolism. You can train in that state, but competing in that state is not necessarily going to be a good thing. Some people can do it and depends on your sport, you can do it. But uh, for a lot of people and, you know, like Tour de France winners and stuff, they've done low carbohydrate diets um, and Ironman like Dave Scott and so on. So there, there certainly are people who can compete and train uh, at that at that level. But if you're competing, you may or you may you have to see how your body is. You may or may not want to be there. But training in the fasted state, it's actually a huge amount of uh, potential benefits. And you know, again, we're talking more for the people like you know, if we forget the sort of world class athletes and get to the other sort of ninety nine percent of uh, people who are just sort of doing a little bit of this and a little bit of that, you know, they don't have to worry about that those sort of things. They're not competing in the Olympics. Got it. And is there a difference between how women and men should fast? Not really. It, 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 there, there are differences, but nothing that you can you have any control over. So um, people talk about, so there's the sex hormones. That's the big difference between men and women, so estrogen and progesterone. They have really not a lot to do with insulin, which is the main hormone that you're affecting with fasting and your diet. It's not to say it doesn't affect fat distribution. So um, this is, again, one of the things that I always think is, uh, if you think about this whole calories in, calories out thing, it's so stupid, honestly. Because if you think about um, pre-sort of growth spurt, so a sort of 10-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy, on average, their body fat are very similar, 10-year-old girl, 10-year-old boy. Then you go through puberty, and at 18, girls have much more fat than boys. So 
you know, according to the traditional sort of calories in, calories out, it's like, well, you ate too many calories and you didn't burn them. So there, and it's all due to willpower and bad diets. It's like what? So every like 50% of the population you're saying has much less willpower and is, you know, eating crappier diets than the boys. Like the girls eat way better than the boys. Like you should eat with teen, see what teenage boys (laughs) eat. Terrible. But they're much more muscular and they're much less fat on the boys. Why? It's the hormones. It's the hormones that are controlling your fat, total fat and your fat distribution, right? It's obvious because boys have testosterone, girls have estrogen and progesterone. They're carrying their fat around their breasts, around their hips, and on average have about 50% more body fat than the, the, the 18-year-old boy. That's just that's just life right yeah. so so but the point is that it's the hormones the hormonal change between the the women and the men that is affecting fat distribution and total amount of body fat not the amount of calories that you happen to be putting in your mouth which is you know i always think you know how stupid are you to believe that it's all about the foods that you ate you know when obviously it has little to do with the difference between men and women and it's the same sort of thing so there are women who are postmenopausal for example have a lot of trouble losing weight and it's probably because of these hormones but uh, on the other hand, it's not something I can do a lot about. Like uh, we don't do a lot of estrogen replacement. Some people do. Um, in men, sometimes you do testosterone replacement if it's low. Uh, and that that's sort of an interesting story uh, as well because it sort of fell out of vogue for a long time. But if you look at the current recommendations, it is actually for, for people with type 2 diabetes and obesity to actually measure them and, and see if they are actually low in testosterone because in men, older men, um, it's a potential way that you can replace a hormone and potentially make people feel better and reduce disease. So that's in the current guidelines, although it's not well sort of known. Crazy. So with the, like, so the reason I asked that question is because a lot of women struggle and a lot of the people who we deal with are also postmenopausal women. And, um, and there's this dreaded plateau. And I suppose it's also a two-pronged question because in one of your hate um, blog posts that I, I was looking at, there was some criticism about a uh, – uh, this is someone else, by the way, not you. I'm, I know you're not a hater. Um, there was a, someone commenting on something you had said where you said that counting calories or restricting calories ends up actually slowing down your base metabolic rate or something like if you restrict calories in the long term, it actually makes you put on weight. Yeah. Uh, So if you do this sort of, so the standard sort of advice for people is to cut 500 calories every day. And the way that this people used to do that is cut out fat because fat is the most calorically dense. So this has been the standard advice for the last, I don't know, 30, 40 years. So count your calories and cut 500 out every single day. Um, The problem with that is that we know, because it's been the standard advice for a long time, we know exactly what happens when you do that. When you do that, so when you cut the number of calories but leave everything else sort of the same, then what happens is that your metabolic rate starts to fall. And it's really not very difficult to understand. So the body, so say it's taking in 2,000 calories, burning 2,000 calories. Now you take in 1,500 calories. But you're eating sort of all throughout the day. You're eating low-fat foods, lots of carbs. Um, So therefore, your insulin levels are still high. 
And insulin sort of blocks you. So insulin blocks you from fat burning fat because insulin is a fat storage hormone. When insulin is high, you want to store those hormones. You don't want to burn them. So therefore, if you're only taking in 1500 and you have no access to your fat stores, well, then the only alternative is to reduce your output by, to 1500 right? It's sort of like yeah. if you make $2,000, uh, you know, every day and you're spending $2,000 every day, now you're getting $1,500 every day and you can't go to the bank. So therefore you have to only spend $1,500 a day. Right. Same thing. So your body's getting 2000 calories, burning 2000. Now you go down to 500 to 1500, but since you don't reduce the hormones, you're not changing the hormonal, um, sort of milieu of the body. You have actually no f- access to those fat stores. Even though you have several hundred thousands of calories on body fat, you have no access to it on a day-to-day basis, and therefore you can't use it. So just like if you're spending two thousand dollars and you're getting two thousand, now you get fifteen hundred, and you got like a million dollars in the bank, but there's no bank branches around. Doesn't matter. You still can't spend it, right? So by keeping the insulin levels high, because you're focused purely on the calorie count, you're you're not focused on getting those insulin levels low because if you can get those insulin levels low, now you can get those calories from your fat stores in, just like the bank. If you could get a branch, you could get to the branch, you can get that money in and therefore not reduce your basal metabolic rate. And that's the point is that it's all about the hormonal sort of uh, profile of the body by not focusing. If you fast or if you eat a very low carbohydrate diet, what you're doing by lowering insulin is allowing your body to access the body fat stores. Mm-hmm. When you do that, now if you're eating 1500 calories, you can take 500 from the fat and then burn 2000. So your body, which wants to burn 2000 calories, is like, yeah, sure. I'll get 1500 from the food, but I have full access to my body fat stores. I'll take 500 from there and I'm all good. So if you take a ketogenic diet, for example, where super low in carbohydrates, You've got full access to the body fat stores because insulin's so low. You've got it all the time. So you can still go wrong with that, of course, because if you're putting in too much fat and not burning enough fat, it's the same. But the point is that if you um, if you don't, if you focus purely on the calories and not on the hormones, you're not going to figure out what's going on. You have no idea why your metabolic rate is slumping. So they did these studies, of course, with The Biggest Loser, which is a, this this show where people yeah. try to lose weight. And their metabolic yeah. rates just plummeted. And, and they everybody thinks exercise increases your metabolic rate. It does nothing for that. Like, why would exercising your muscle increase the amount of energy your liver uses, for example? Because that's what metabolic rate is. It's not your muscles necessarily. It's your heart, it's your lung, it's your kidney, it's your body heat generation, right? So exercising your skeletal muscles, so exercising your biceps and your triceps and so on, doesn't make your kidney use more energy. It doesn't make your liver use more energy. It doesn't make your brain use more energy. So while it may have a small effect in terms of the skeletal muscle, it's not going to have any effect on anything else. Like, it doesn't have any effect on body heat generation, for example. So it's 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 like during the period of exercise, it will, but after that, it may or may not. So the point is that you know everybody thinks that metabolic rate is fixed. It's not. It's yeah. it's actually quite variable, and it all depends on what the, what what the hormones are doing, and not just exercise, and not just calories. Like you you got to be a little smarter than that. And this is where I'm always like 
boy, you really just cannot believe that all these so-called smart people in the universities are so focused and it's so stupid. Like the whole thing is completely, utterly, ridiculously stupid and it doesn't work. Like if it works, I'm okay. Like if I think it's stupid, but it works, then it's not stupid, right? By definition, if it works, it's not stupid, but it doesn't work. So it is stupid. Got it. So I don't know. I mean, we've got like just a little bit of time left, but uh, I wanted to ask, I meant to open up with this question about COVID and I can't help but notice, you know, you've written a book on cancer and diabetes and obesity, and it's all, you know, linked to insulin resistance. And those are some of the biggest, I mean, those three, uh, I think the three biggest comorbidities that increase your risk of death with COVID. And I haven't actually read any anyone even say the word insulin at all in any press. I mean, what has your experience been? Like, is um, this the elephant in the room? I, it's hard to know because COVID is a virus. And um, the problem is that uh, they're very, they're separate. Like obesity is going to increase your risk of dying of COVID. We know that it's a huge risk factor, but it probably increases your risk of dying of a whole lot of stuff too like diabetes for example is a big problem so diabetes of course increases your risk of dying with covid but it's really bad for infections in general you get all these infections and diabetics that happen anyway um because we don't know a whole lot about it it, there's just no data to say does insulin hyperinsulinemia does that play a role in it um it's it's really hard to say i think the question is more like surely and you know it's from the chef here but surely it's obvious that if you want to re- reduce your risk of dying of covid you should be working on the highest risk factors which are yeah exactly what you said and yeah so and that's that's, where i haven't heard anyone say like why don't you guys try and lose weight it's like yeah it's because it's 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 not like a short-term thing right it's uh losing weight is good for many 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 things but it's not something that you can do in like a month sort of thing, right? If you're 300 pounds, you're, it's going to be very hard for you to get down to 150 pounds in a month. Like, I'm not even sure you should do that. That's, that's you know, you, you do run into problems when you have overly quick, um, you know, weight loss. But yeah. the, the, the point is that it's, 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 it, it is important. Like, I'm, I'm not saying it's not important, but the question is what, what can you do about it now? Like people are, we're supposed to be losing weight. I mean, everybody's known that for years. So it doesn't add very much to the conversation to say you should lose weight. Like you should lose weight for a lot of reasons. So if you look at the top two killers of uh, people in, in America anyway, it's heart disease and cancer. And both of those, of course, are impacted by, by your body weight. So you, people should be losing weight anyway. Um, so to say it in relation to COVID is sort of like, well, it's a, it is important, but it's not anything sort of new that you can do a lot about. It's not like saying don't smoke sort of thing, which is, you know, yes, you can stop it's smoking instant. tomorrow. Sort of. Yeah, it's instant. Whereas losing weight is like, well, we've always known we should lose weight. And mm-hmm. honestly, the, the whole lockdown thing has been a total disaster for most people's diets anyway. So it's terrible. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's weird, like the the, the split, because I've seen people now that lockdowns lifted in South Africa, like who are ripped, who like were never ripped, and they were because they, they were doing like online gymming, and then the other half of people who are obviously like more anxious and stressed about their businesses, and you know, it's naturally devastating for a lot, are like in terrible shape. So it's like yeah. people went one of two ways, but very few yeah. people are, you know, have just stayed the same. Yeah, I, I don't see actually a whole lot getting ripped, but I do see a lot gaining weight. But yeah, I, I see what you mean. I mean, I think the big problem with the lockdown from a weight standpoint has been that normally people have a lot of things that they do for fun. So they go out with their friends and they go to see a movie or they go to a show or whatever it is. They travel, right? Um, you take everything fun in life away. Right, you can't even see your mom and dad. You can't even see your brothers and sisters. You got this bubble you're supposed to keep, right? You can do nothing fun except eat. So, what do people do? Eat. So, I heard this all the time. Like people are like, "I can't fast." I'm like, uh, "I hear you. I I couldn't I couldn't really do it myself, right? It's it's tough because." It's not simply, eating is not simply about gaining sustenance, right? It's about something pleasurable. And if you lose everything else that's pleasurable, except for food, guess what? You're going to replace it with food. And I don't know that you can do anything about it until this thing goes down. Because this is why those any diet where you eat the same thing over and over, it doesn't really matter what it is. It, it, you almost always gain weight. Like they, they have these diets where you just eat the same thing. Like for yeah. example, you know, there's this, yeah, that was a fraud. But anyway, it was, uh, there's this guy who ate Subway sandwiches every day for like, and he lost a lot of weight. That was this guy. He turned out to be a pedophile, but anyway, he lost a lot of weight. He was on Oprah. Eh? He was, he was big. It he was, was big on, news. Yeah, yeah. It turns out later on, he got arrested for like having like, pornographic images on his computer of children and stuff is a bad scene but anyway he ate the same thing but the point is that when you eat the same thing over and over you just stop enjoying that and it really doesn't yeah. matter what you're eating if you were to eat ice cream and everybody loves ice cream you eat ice cream every day you're gonna get sick of it like you wouldn't believe so that's the point so when you take when you eat the same thing you could lose a lot of weight because you stop eating for pleasure because it's like, say say you eat cookies every day and that's your cookie diet, right? So you say, okay, love cookies, love cookies. After like the 50th day of cookies, like the only thing you eat is cookies. You're like, Bleh. yeah, I don't want to eat any more cookies. Like that's the last thing. I so, so you eat when you absolutely have to, but there's no enjoyment anymore. So therefore you, you eat like the, you know, this little crumb and then it's like, Oh, that's enough. I can't stand cookies anymore. Sort of thing. Right. So, so that's the point. It's, it, it, it's what happened during COVID is that you take away everything else pleasurable and then you, you, except for eating. And it was a total disaster. People are gaining weight like, like crazy. And it's still happening now because people are like, well, you know, if I'm going to die of COVID, I might as well buy a couple of pounds heavier, right? Which is the wrong thing to be thinking uh, for a lot of cases. But unfortunately, this sort of extreme response uh, has a huge number of unintended consequences. Mm. That is maybe reduce COVID, but then by making everybody gain weight are you going to make heart disease worse and cancer worse and all this stuff stuff that you can't really measure totally yeah what you said was profound though when you take away everything that's fun 
and the only thing you've got left is food. That's what you do. That's, that's like the psychology of, of eating. And I think that a lot of people experience that in life, even outside of lockdown, you know, people are lonely. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think uh, you hit the nail on the head. Yeah. Jason, it's been an absolute pleasure having you. So thanks for thanks. Take, take, spending your lunch break with me. I'm, I can see everyone who started watching at the beginning is still watching now, which is great. <laughs> so, so it was a good year, a real pleasure. Nice to chat to you again. Thanks so much. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much. Cool, man. Check it out. Share and like this post. People need to listen to this stuff. Okay, bye. <laughs>